This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Who um, has a climbing PSA. Yeah, that's the group of patients we're talking about. So six years ago, he was found to have a, a Gleason 3 plus 4 tumor with a PSA of 4.6. Um, and he underwent radical prostatectomy. Uh, and radical prostatectomy uh, revealed um, a, a Gleason score four plus three tumor, negative margins, no extra capsular exception, uh, uh, extension, negative seminal vesicles, negative lymph nodes. So organ confined disease as best we could tell. His PSA fell to undetectable. But then over the course of time, as you've seen it here, uh, oops, excuse me. Over the course of time, uh, his PSA uh, has climbed up to about 0.29. Dr. Agarwal spoke a little bit about the PSA doubling time. Uh, The PSA doubling time was calculated and was found to be 21 months as shown here. So I've summarized here, current PSA 0.29, PSA doubling time 20 months. And so my first question, um, and and I'll pitch this one first to Tom, uh, should we image him at all? And you've been asked to image him, can you just for this particular patient compare and contrast uh, these, these imaging modalities? So should you image him now is not exactly my decision. Fine, um, I'll, I'll I, smack that question. <laughs> <laughs> but when yes. you see, I, yeah. should matter, Mac. Yes. I think the question is a little different. If you go back one slide, I think the interesting question is when should you image him, right? He's had recurrent, biochemically recurrent prostate cancer after RP now for three years. And what, you know, we talk a lot about the quote trigger PSA, what PSA would make you either initiate salvage therapy or should you get imaging at? And I think that's a harder question, um, which there's really no definitive answer. So maybe, I don't know, Mac, if you had a comment on that, because in this setting, we've waited three years. I don't think much ground has been lost, but what, when did you, why do you choose to do imaging now rather than two years ago or a year ago? You said Mac or Mac? Matt? Either one. Go for it. <laughs> Matt, why, Matt, let's start with you and then Matt. So Matt, at what point yeah, so, did this guy? I should say that this case was not all at UCSF, so he showed up with a, at our door later. But let's say he was. At what point would you have considered uh, imaging, recommending imaging? Matt. Yeah. So, I mean, so the fact that it was not all here, first of all, there are a couple of questions I would have from the pathology. What was the benign margin status? How many nodes were taken out? Um, and this is actually a case where I would really like to know the decipher score. Like we talked about yesterday, I tend to have a lower threshold for intervention in the setting of a high decipher and or a high portal score uh, than with a lower score. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, obviously Tom will, will chime in on this. You know, the PSA is high enough here that we would expect the yield for a PSMA PET to start to be reasonable. There's usually low yield from local imaging like truss and MR. We do it from time to time, but especially in the setting of negative margins and a T2 tumor, this is not that likely to be a locally recurrent prostate cancer. Again, assuming the pathology was accurate and all that from the outside outside hospital. 
so we would want pathology reviewed here. Um, I would certainly want to know the benign margin status. If there was a large benign margin, we could see this sort of PSA trajectory. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of subtleties in in terms of sorting this out. Okay, uh, Tom, let me let me just ask you a question because these questions have came up yesterday and a little bit today. Um, the the issue of likelihood of picking up, and I, and I appreciate that this is very variable, but the likelihood of picking up disease on PSMA PET at a given PSA level. So we're often asked by patients, should I wait on getting my PSMA scan because it's unlikely to be negative now? Or so comment on the PSA level as well as the PSA doubling time as predictors of PSMA uptake. Yeah, so the PSA, clearly the higher your PSA, the more likely you are to have a positive PSMA PET. Uh, when your PSA is 0.2 or lower, it's probably somewhere around 40% chance or 30 to 40% chance of having positive disease. When it gets above 0.2 to 0.5, it's maybe 40 to 50%. To me, I think it actually, this is why I don't feel like I should be the one answering this question. If this patient was going to be considered for salvage radiotherapy with a PSA of 0.09, then you want to get the imaging at the time when it's clinically relevant. If you're going to sit and watch the patient, then don't get the PSMA PET at a PSA of 0.09. So really to me, you know, there is no right answer. It's not like if it's a 0.3 chance or 30% chance versus a 40% chance, that is going to decide whether or not you're going to get an imaging study. I think it really fits into, you know, what Mac wants. Is he considering salvage radiotherapy or not? When's he thinking of doing it? And at that time, we should be getting an imaging study to determine if there is PSMA of the disease that would impact his radiation therapy plan. Perfect. And so I just want to make that point for the audience that uh, decision-making about PSMA imaging should not be driven uh, by PSA, other than we know that at zero, well, it's, it's not likely to help us at all, but that it really should be based on clinical decision-making. So if your clinical decision-making is going to be altered by the findings, then you should do it. Uh, so I think that's a really important take-home point. There's nothing magical about any given PSA level. Um, okay, so MAC, uh, let me go, go back then and ask you the question. This is not going backwards, sorry. Um, Eric, while you're scrolling back, I'm sorry, there was a live, there was a question which should be answered live. What is a benign margin? Right. Um, you know, so our, our pathologist at ECSF, not everybody does this, but our pathologist will look at the specimen and say, are there cancer cells at the margin? Meaning, do they see cancer cells at the edge of the specimen? If they do, well, we have to worry there might be cancer cells on the other side, meaning still left in the body. They can also look and see, are there benign prostate glands at the margin? Meaning, are there benign prostate glands left behind? Again, a lot of pathologists don't really read that out. Our folks at UCSF do. And when we see significant benign margins, that benign prostate cells left in the body are not cancer, but they can be a source of ongoing PSA production. Right. Okay. So Thanks. I would have ordered a PSMA PET for sure when the PSA was 0.21 and probably when it was 0.16. I mean, the yield is definitely gonna be higher with 0.21 and the definition of recurrence based on AUA and ASTRO guidelines, 0.2 is a definite biochemical recurrence. But I and if you look at the RAVES and radical studies, 0.16 is an early recurrence. So I would favor have done it, doing it then. There are series where patients had very low PSAs, for example, three years ago, 0 
where some patients have benign glands at the edge of the field and can have a stable PSA for years with no evidence of progression. So 0.09, I probably would not have ordered a PSMA PET, but when it got to 0.16, probably in 0.21, definitely. Got it. And Mac, without a PSMA PET scan, is this a patient that you would contemplate for uh, second line, so-called salvage radiation therapy at this point? Definitely. I mean, so the thing is that we, did, we didn't have PET for the last, you know, 20, 30 right. years. And we managed these patients by radiating the place where the prostate used to be. And most people's PSAs go down when you do that. So we wouldn't change that. But the PSMA PET helps us, you know, determine whether we have to worry about systemic disease, metastases, and so forth. Got it. And if you radiate it now, with, and let's say we don't have a decipher score, but or, or we do, and it's a low, it's, it's low risk, would you do it with or without androgen deprivation therapy? Um, and how so, would you make those decisions? So if the decipher score was high, I would definitely add hormone therapy because those patients have a higher risk of metastatic disease. If the decipher score was low, I think that those patients are more likely to have just a local recurrence and local treatment might be adequate, but that would be, it would be valuable to have a PSMA PET that might be positive in the bed or an, even an ultrasound that might have disease in the bed uh, to uh, encourage me to only want to give local treatment. So it, it does affect things uh, in terms of how the radiation would be designed. Okay. And one, one last question for you, Mac. Um, would you want to have this patient's prostate bed biopsy before you consider radiation? Not necessarily. Uh, the standard of care is not to go back and biopsy everybody. All the series that have been published and the data from randomized trials, none of them required a biopsy. We do have patients that have biopsy-proven disease uh, sometimes. And in, and in the series by Connolly that I described earlier, Shinohara basically biopsy these, these patients. Um, if, if you do have a positive biopsy, it does allow you to put markers there and boost that area to make sure that you have a better chance of, of local control. Uh, and, in, and in the case where the biopsies were positive, 90% of the time he saw something suspicious on ultrasound. So if he did an ultrasound and he did not see anything suspicious, then he probably would not do a biopsy. Got it. Okay. This is Hella. I'd like to make a few comments. One is it sounds like among all of us, there is this sort of key point of 0.2 to be a place where we feel like imaging is warranted. Let's think about our patients who may not have the luxury of some of the advanced diagnostics and testing that we've talked about. So the luxury of a reread of a pathology report, which can oftentimes not be covered by patient insurance and could be thousands of dollars for some patients. So that may not be the right fit for all patients to pursue. Second is the luxury of genomic testing or, or profiling of the tumor that may not be uh, available for our patients. So we need to think through how would we manage without that data. And then, of course, PSMA PET, so molecular imaging. Um, and so if we have this case and we have our wish list of advanced diagnostics we'd like in order to make decisions and tailor their therapy, how would we move forward if we didn't have access to those resources or a patient who could afford those resources? How would that change our therapy? Really, really good point. Um, and obviously, well, you know, we're, we're, this whole conversation is very UCSF 
focused, needs to assess specific. Uh, I mean, if you look at this patient, every guideline and trial would support the use of empiric uh, salvage radiation therapy at this point. I will say that, you know, this pathology report is not one that predicts a fantastic response. He's got no risk factors for a local recurrence based on the information we have here. So I think it's a little bit hard to predict how successful it would be, but there's little argument that the next step would be salvage radiation therapy empirically. I agree. I think the key takeaway that I'm observing is that salvage radiation therapy would be a, a reasonable way to move forward if you're not able to access these other advanced diagnostics. Hello, thank you for raising that. There was actually questions, you may have seen them earlier throughout the day, of you know how do we address our broader catchment area if we don't have the luxury of coming to UCSF and so forth. So great point and something for us always to, to have in mind. One other point from the Q&A here, there's a comment about how scary this all can be and why we're not talking more about the psychological aspects of it. Um, it's a really, really important uh, point to raise. And you know, we do have access to uh, the symptom management service and psycho-oncology services and, and are quite focused on, uh, on the psychological aspects of the cancer diagnosis, especially when we get into progression in some of these higher risk situations. Uh, but I think it is a thread that often gets lost and we're not always good about proactively asking about stress, um, and it's a very important thing to raise within, uh, in your discussions with your, with your providers. And I will also say that we do have one of our sessions later today, uh, one of the uh, individual uh, breakout sessions is specifically on symptom management, family caregiving, uh, which is an important component, but great question. So we've already addressed this. This patient underwent a transrectal ultrasound and biopsy, didn't find any recurrent prostate cancer. We've talked already about how we would approach that. So he ultimately undergoes a PSMA PET scan. Tom, do you want to describe this PET scan here? <laughs> um, the, the negative PSMA PET description is quite short, but this is what a normal uh, biodistribution of PSMA target radiotrace would look like, primarily in the kidneys and the bladder some salivary gland uptake and a little bit of uptake there in your duodenum. But uh, that's there's no evidence of the disease in this, but you can't tell obviously from looking at this image, you have to scroll through it, but that's about it. Great, that's perfect. And and we do point out, you know, I think the chipmunk cheeks and the, the salivary glands is important because it tells us that the scan worked. So that's good. So he undergoes a PSMA scan, no uptake anywhere. Um, so uh, Mac, does that affect your recommendation to radiate, not radiate? So if you, if you look at uh, patients that have uh, PSMA PETs done prior to radical prostatectomy, and they say that the pelvis shows no evidence of lymph node involvement, you can miss a third of the lymph nodes that are involved. So if they're very small, they'll be below the resolution of PSMA PET. This patient has only one curative option after recurring after surgery, and that's radiation. So I would still treat them even if the PSMA PET was completely negative. And uh, because of the grade of his tumor, I would also, in his PSA level, I would consider adding hormone therapy and pelvic radiation as well. Right. Yeah, and certainly in, under those circumstances, we can go back and take a look at the Decipher score and, and ask for it because it's, it's there. The beauty of that is that that's available. It does not require fresh tissue. Uh, okay, these, by the way, are the exact same questions as I've, uh, pasted forward in every case. Um, there, there is a question about the use of intermittent hormone therapy and how you interpret the PSA doubling time, which is complicated by the rate at which the testosterone recovers. So can somebody, can one of you comment on that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I can jump in. Um, so the key to calculating a PSA doubling time is that it be in this in in the absence of changing therapy, because if you're changing therapy, who knows what's happening? And in particular, in patients with relatively stable uh, testosterone levels. So it's fine to, as we'll discuss later, fine to calculate the PSA doubling time when the testosterone is low, so long as it's not in the process of climbing. Uh, and similarly, it's fine to calculate it in the setting of a high testosterone, so long as it's not changing. So during the on and off phases, the PSA of intermittent therapy, um, the, the PSA doubling time is not particularly useful. Um, okay, I'm going to skip ahead. Um, this particular case was a man who ended up not undergoing uh, radiation at any point along the way. And I don't recall, I, it's, it's, it's not my case, uh, but I believe that some of this was just the patient preference, that he just did not want radiation therapy despite the recommendation having been made. So the PSA was, the PSMA PET was followed. A second PSMA PET was obtained, nothing changed. His PSA climbs up to 0.8. His PSA doubling time is a little bit shorter. He started off at 20.9 months. Now he's 11 months. He undergoes a third PSMA PET. Tom? Well, this one is, uh, at least there's something to describe in this one. So uh, on, on this patient, you can see that there is, in fact, a disease seen on the PSMA PET. And let's see if I can pull this out. So this here is the bladder, right? Tom, you're but not. Oh, oh, thank you. Perfect. Great. Wow. Very tricky. I'm trying. But there's a little, a little node directly adjacent to the bladder, which you can see on these additional images here. And there's actually two of them right here on in the right internal iliac and right pelvic sidewall area. And so this patient has two lymph nodes. And I think one thing I'd like to, I think this comes up a lot, is that the to me, the avidity of the tumor, how hot it is, really helps you feel confident that that is real disease and that there's no other sites of disease. So in a patient who has, as you can see, just very, very, in this case, yellow disease, uh, where the radiotrophic is really collecting in the tumor and there's no other sites beyond these two nodes, it really helps you feel confident that there is no other disease in the pelvis or throughout the body. But two sites of metastases in the same region on the right pelvis. Perfect, thank you, Tom. This, this actually kind of validates, I think, the comments that both I and Mac made earlier that the, you know, the pathology predicted non-local recurrence. And yeah, this micrometastatic disease in the lymph nodes would certainly have warranted pelvic radiation as well as prostate fossa radiation. I think it also raises the question, though, that or the point that you know, we should never order tests that are not going to change management. So for a patient who is you know, dead set against salvage radiation therapy, which, which some men reasonably are, you know, why are we spending the right. money and effort on repeated PSMA PET scans? Uh, it does become a question. Absolutely. And I think it really gets back to the comment that, that Tom made is let's decide what, how, we be, how we would deal with the data, what our therapeutic plans are first, and then order the test as opposed to saying, I don't know, let's see what the test shows. Uh, so I, I think that's a, it's a really important uh, point. So Mac, given these findings, would that change your uh, radiation approach? Would you recommend, you know, we 
you heard Felix talking about SBRT, you know, to oligometastatic metastatic disease. Would you go after the, that way? Would you do pelvis? How would you approach this man? So if you look at the literature on just treating the oligometastatic focus in the pelvis, there are two nodes that are lighting up. If you radiate those two nodes, the normal pattern of failure is for additional nodes up the nodal chain. So that I am not typically treating these patients with just focal radiation to the PET positive nodes, but I will include prophylactic irradiation up the nodal chain. And I would also give hormone therapy before I gave the pelvic nodal radiation. We have data that shows that the sequence is best if you're going to radiate pelvic lymph nodes to give hormone therapy first. The big change is that these nodes I would treat. So, so for prophylactic areas, areas that are imaging negative, we give five weeks of radiation, 4,500 to places that don't show disease. But for these bulky areas, we would hypofractionate the nodes and give 6,000 plus hormone therapy, minimum dose to each of these nodes. And that would increase, increase the likelihood that they would be controlled long-term. So basically boosting to these really hot spots and, and sort of broad pelvis. So um, there was a question earlier, and this would be a good time to address it. Um, why wouldn't we want to seed these, you know, put a gold seed into one of these nodes the way you do put it into the prostate? Technically, you're asking about putting seeds into the nodes. It's, it's yeah. challenging to get seeds there, number one. Number two, the nodes don't move very much at all. Exactly, yeah. You know, so we don't really need to put seeds in there. We can use the bony anatomy to help cover the nodes. The prostate bed itself is mobile because of variable filling of the rectum and the bladder, but the nodes are pretty fixed around the major blood vessels. Exactly the point. Okay, great. Okay. I'll make one, one additional comment that we will occasionally do salvage node dissections, you know, actually go after these surgically. Yeah. Like, like Max said, they, they usually, I mean, if there are visible nodes, there's usually more microscopic disease that we don't see. So it is very, very rarely curative to do that. But for some patients who really, really want to avoid radiation therapy at all costs, we will very occasionally do that, especially when the original surgery was done somewhere else. And we will, you know, even when it's not curative, we will sometimes buy an interval of hormonal therapy, but it's, but it is rarely curative. Okay. Thank you. All right. We're going to move to our second case. We have three cases total. The second and third are a little bit shorter. Um, so this is essentially a similar situation, a man who presents with a PSA 7.3, Gleason 4 plus 3 disease. He has a CT done before a surgery uh, of the abdomen and pelvis, doesn't show any enlarged nodes. Um, he undergoes a radical prostatectomy. You see the findings here. He did have a few nodes that had cancer in them. And unfortunately, his very first postoperative PSA is not zero. It's not undetectable, it's 0 0.67. So let's assume that a CT of his abdomen and pelvis and his bone scan truly are negative. What are the treatment options here? Um, so uh, let's, let, let's start with Mac. Um, you know, is this someone who you would radiate now? Is this someone who you'd wanna image? What's next? So I actually usually will send these patients first for an ultrasound to make sure that they don't have persistent local disease. I've had several, a handful of patients who post-prostatectomy they had part of their prostate that was left behind, that even though the CT and the MR, uh, the CT and bone scan are negative, 
Um, as I described earlier uh, in, the, in the paper by Connolly et al. from 1996, that if I can define a local piece of tissue, I think the prognosis is much better because that means that's where all that PSA is coming from. There are a lot of men walking down the street with a normal PSA of 0.67 who have a prostate. So that's a fair amount of, of, uh, of PSA for somebody that has no prostate. Um, but but if they don't have local disease, this is where I would love to have a PSMA pet, and I would also plan on treating this patient. Right. I, so on this, this slide, I asked about the role of imaging. I, I neglected to include um, a transrectal ultrasound to look. Uh, Tom, I'm going to just ask you for a question, and this ties in a little bit with Hella's comment about not everyone has access to a PSMA pet. Um, can you talk about you? You, you talked about the comparison between uh, axumin or fluciclovine versus PSMA PET, and it's quite clear that PSMA is superior. Is it worth doing a fluciclovine if we didn't have a PSMA PET? And what about choline PET that has been famously pushed by some institutions? That's a great question. So, yes, if PSMA PET is not available, absolutely in this setting, fluciclovine would be an appropriate indication. Now, I will say uh, when your PSA gets low with fluciclovine, the detection sensitivity goes down. So, actually, a lot of insurance companies will not cover a fluciclovine PET when your PSA is less than one uh, because it has such a low detection uh, rate in that patient population. Now, I consider fluciclovine and choline, in essence, equivalent in their ability to localize recurrent disease. Uh, so if you could get one or the other, I don't think it makes any difference. I will say choline is sort of a uh, historical anachronism now in that it's only really available at maybe four or five institutions in the country anyways. Um, and with the availability of fluciclovine, uh, you know, few patients will be traveling to go get a choline pet when they are, in essence, the same thing. Uh, I, I, you know, with the approval of DCFPYL, hopefully this month, I'm very hopeful that PSMA PET will not be uh, difficult to access within maybe six months or so. It'll be covered by Medicare and, and widely available. Great. Um, thanks, Tom. That's very useful. So here's this guy. You want to talk about, th these are your slides, Tom, so tell us what you found. <laughs> Well, there's big, big red circles uh, localizing where the recurrent disease is. I, I always like to show this slide because to me, it really shows how PSMA PET will replace this combination of a bone scan and a CT, right? We won't need to get imaging of the bone and then separately imaging of soft tissues. We can see both osseous and soft tissue lesions at the same time. And here you can see a right humeral metastasis, the upper arm there, which is sort of uh, swimmer's position uh, has a metastatic lesion and then a left internal iliac lymph node there with focal uptake. So way, 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 way. I'm now the treating physician and I'm saying, holy cow, are you telling me that in this patient with a PSA of 0.67, where we've been totally focused both on this patient and historically on the pelvis, that there is something up in his arm, in his shoulder? How that's outrageous, you know, is this disease really that systemic in nature? And how often would we expect the PSMA pet to pick up something totally distant, right? Because this is, this is now not in max pelvic radiation field, right? It's way outside. How often do we see this? Are you surprised? Should we biopsy it? Are you, are you sure it's prostate cancer? 
So that's a good question. So first, this is not outside of Mac's ability to irradiate. So I'm sure we'll get outside to that in a minute. Outside of his pelvis is what I was saying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so no, I mean, I, I think it's surprising. And I'm sure, you know, most everyone in this call is surprised by where some of these sites of recurrence are in patients with PSMA, particularly the left supraclavicular disease, mediastinal disease that I don't think uh, we were all really aware of before we were doing PSMA PET imaging uh, more frequently in these patients. Now, this is obviously a somewhat uncommon location of metastatic disease. Uh, you don't see a lot of humeral metastases, but in this case, this is tumor. Uh, there are regions in the bone, particularly ribs, uh, is sort of the culprit area where you can have a false positive uptake with PSMA PET, and there's characteristics of osseous mm -hmm. lesions, lesions in the bones that can suggest benign entities that will mimic prostate cancer. But in this case, this is a metastatic lesion in the humerus, and it should not be, this would be a very hard lesion to biopsy, uh, and I would not biopsy this to care to determine whether or not it's metastatic disease. I would treat this as if it's prostate cancer, assume and move forward. Right. Yeah, I, I, sh I would say that when in the early days of PSMA PET imaging, when we saw these very unusual locations, we felt compelled to biopsy them because we just didn't believe it. And lo and behold, many of them, all of them, were prostate cancer. So we have to believe the, the images. Um, Tom, what's the proportion of patients that have what we would call supradiaphragmatic or disease above the diaphragm here uh, on, on PSMA PET imaging in these recurrent patients? So that is going to be really directly related to your PSA. Uh, in a patient with a PSA less than one like this, it's very uncommon, right? This type of patient, it'll be, you know, less than 5% of patients will have disease in this region. But if your PSA starts to rise, it's going to increase more and more. So, you know, the two sort of areas that it will go to above the diaphragm are bones. You'll see, obviously, a lot of spinal metastases and some rib metastases, and then mediastinal supraclavicular disease. As the, the disease spreads up through the lymphatics, the thoracic duct, up into uh, your venous drainage in your neck. And so there are disease sites up in the neck as well. Um, but really as your PSA gets higher and higher, that's when these locations will become more and more likely to be involved with the uh, tumor. So it's not really pertinent to the discussion here, but Matt, I want to ask you, um, does the commentary that Tom just made make you rethink taking a patient with a PSA of 20, say, to the operating room for a prostatectomy? And would you start thinking, gee, I better get a PSMA pen on him? Great question. So, I mean, one of the one of the patients you mentioned biopsying, one of, I think the third PSMA patient at UCSF, something like that was a patient I saw first, and I think we've all seen, um, you know, PSMA PET showed this supraclavicular node, and right. I may or may not have made snarky comments about yet another false positive imaging test. We biopsied in it, and of course it was positive. So we're learning, I mean, what this test is really teaching us is how much we don't know about prostate cancer biology and just how early in its course, some of these high-grade tumors become systemic. And, and you know, we see these cases not uncommonly of a high-grade cancer, the Gleason 8s and 9s in particular, where we have what looks like a small organ-confined tumor, um, positive, you know, favorable pathology results. And then years later, a patient would show up with a positive bone scan. Well, now we're finding that course earlier. It's that stage migration that we talked about yesterday. However, we have decades of literature that support the use of aggressive local therapy for men with high-risk prostate cancer based on bone scan negativity. And what that tells us is that there is a role for cytoreduction, meaning even if we know we are not taking out every single cancer cell, 
there is a survival benefit for treating the 99.9% that are in the prostate with yeah. surgery or radiation therapy or a combination. And if you think about many other cancers, that is the standard of care approach is surgery and radiation and systemic therapy. And I think, you know, the mindset in prostate, I, I believe we should be heading in that direction for these high risk cancers. And the question is figuring out the right combination of treatments and the right sequence of treatments. We've got randomized trial evidence supporting the use of radiation therapy for men who have limited metastatic disease you know, where survival is, is better. Uh, we have, I know Mac made some comments about this yesterday. It's controversial. Uh, the data between surgery and radiation therapy depends what you read. Some of the, there are actually some very strong, well done studies suggesting survival benefit for surgery, possibly in addition, in addition to radiation therapy, in addition to systemic therapy. So we'll, so we'll the getting, high risk cancers, you know. Rahul will be talking about that when we talk about yeah. uh, systemic disease. So, okay, good. Yeah. That, that's, that's perfect, perfect discussion. Um, okay. So this patient then has oligometastatic disease. Um, we've already talked about this, what kind of radiation. Um, Mac, would you do SBRT to the shoulder? Would you do re regular radiation? What about the prostate bed and the pelvis? Um, so, so Felix talked about the Orium study, which suggested that you should treat every place where you find a metastasis with SBRT. And then you have the stampede study that says when you diagnose somebody with, uh, you know, with a rising, even though they have metastatic disease, you should still treat the primary. So this is, this is sort of an extrapolation here. You have a post-op patient. So I would treat the primary. I would treat the oligometastatic focus and he needs long-term hormone therapy. And if he's a young guy and this guy is relatively young for prostate, I would send them to the medical oncologist to have a conversation about adding drugs beyond just traditional hormone therapy. So that's perfect. I was going to ask Hella the next question. So Hella, Max sends them to you. Uh, what are what are your thought processes about the type and duration of systemic therapy? Yeah, I think there are two points I try to make with patients in this scenario, which is great. We have this advanced imaging. We're able to identify some areas of disease but we need to ask the question, could there be microscopic disease that we still cannot see? And that's really the, uh, the bottom of the iceberg that Felix showed in his slide. And, and there's a role of hormonal therapy to treat microscopic disease. There's also a role of hormonal therapy to increase the uh, efficacy of radiation therapy that Mac Roche will, will use to, to the areas that are seen and, and um, uh, the local pelvis. When we think about hormonal therapy, there are two key components. One is the backbone of androgen deprivation therapy. So to reduce the testosterone level with hormone injections. And then we can layer on and provide intensive hormonal therapy, also known as augmented hormonal therapy, by using an androgen signaling inhibitor. And we're in a place right now that's sort of an embarrassment of riches in terms of what types of oral therapies we could layer on and have three oral therapies that have uh, really been considered, one of which is abiraterone, which is given with prednisone, also known as ITGA, enzalutamide or apalutamide. And these therapies all work along the androgen receptor pathway, but they have two uh, distinct um, mechanisms. Uh, one is to reduce the production of testosterone. That's what the abiraterone is doing. And the other is a blocker, it's an androgen receptor blocker. Okay. Role for chemotherapy in this setting, Bella? So in this context where you have one spot of distant metastatic disease, uh, I think 
I think most of us would agree there is no role for chemotherapy as the larger clinical trials such as TARDID have not shown a survival benefit for patients who have what's described as low volume metastatic disease. So I think by and large, chemotherapy would not be offered in this scenario. However, an intensified hormonal therapy would be considered. Great. Thank you for that. So um, we're going to move on, I believe, to our third case. And this one, we should be done. We'll, we'll be finishing up in the next five minutes. This is a short one. Um, so this is a, 50, a young man, 54 years old, presents with a high PSA, similar to what we were just talking about, Matt. He's got a big prostate mass. He's got high risk on MRI. He's got some suspicious lymph uh, pelvic nodes on, on MRI that don't quite meet the criteria for size that, that the radiation radiologist will use. He, he undergoes a transrectal ultrasound, guided biopsies. He's got Gleason score 4 plus 5 disease in all 12 of his cores. So uh, bad, you know, aggressive disease. Uh, he has underlying cardiac issues. And so uh, the decision is made to uh, undergo primary radiation therapy. Um, his PSA falls, and, and the radiation is done along with two years of, of androgen deprivation therapy. You can argue about whether you should have had more therapy, but this is what he got. Um, his PSA falls to undetectable, and after the two years of hormones, it stopped. His hormones are stopped. And four months later, his testosterone starts to recover. And within six months, he's very happy because his testosterone is back to normal. However, his PSA has been drifting up the whole time, and it's now 10. He undergoes, undergoes conventional imaging with a bone scan and a CAT scan, and it's negative. Hella, what do you want to do? Uh, so there are some key pieces to this story that I talk about with patients. So clearly he had high risk disease in the beginning, which made us concerned that he had a higher probability of recurrence after um, localized therapy. Of course, we have to take a holistic approach and I'm concerned about his bad underlying cardiac issues and, and whatever they may be. When a PSA of 10 is what we're dealing with, we're concerned that there's systemic disease, even if conventional imaging does not identify um, area of disease. If we can get a more advanced imaging approach, then of course we discuss that and see if we could do that. I think most of us here would prefer to see if we could get a PSMA PET or you know, a fluciclidine PET. So I'll stop there. Tom, can you describe this PSMA PET scan? Well, luckily now we've seen a bunch of PSMA PET scans, so we're familiar with what to expect. And as you can see in this patient, there is a lot of PSMA AVA disease. It's primarily all nodal disease going up from the bilateral pelvic retroperineal and then up into the mediastinal and supraclavicular region. But what's interesting is they're all very small. Uh, lots of sub-centimeter little lymph nodes, but really extensive disease, uh, much more than you would ever have expected uh, given the negative CT scan and bone scan, but somewhat consistent as we remember we were talking about how PSA correlates with extent of disease seen on PSMA PET. There's obviously a large extent of disease consistent with a PSA of 10 compared to the prior studies that we were talking about with PSAs well below one. Great. So Hella, uh, you can see what was done uh, ADT plus abiraterone were recommended. Is that your 
Was that what you would do at this point? Uh, so I, I definitely agree that this patient needs systemic therapy, therapy to treat the whole system. There's multiple areas of disease. So I agree with that um, bottom line. I agree that we need to start androgen deprivation therapy and we need to layer on an androgen signaling inhibitor. And as I shared before, there are three options. If the patient has, you know, heart failure or, you know, concern in cardiac um, condition, I would not be keen on using abiraterone prednisone first, as it does um, have a few um, known toxicities or side effects that can be worrisome for patients with cardiac conditions. For one, it is given with prednisone, so it can drift up the blood pressure and cause patients to retain fluid, which can be dangerous if there's an underlying heart failure condition. Uh, it can also trigger um, heart rhythm issues as well, which can be uh, difficult to manage. So I would likely consider one of the other two oral therapies to be given in addition to this patient and also make sure that those therapies do not interact with their other medications as they have a fair amount of drug-drug interactions. So all of the um, androgen signaling inhibitors have potential cardiac toxicity, right? They all have potential arrhythmias and so forth. Is this someone uh, who you would consider chemotherapy for? It's a great question. Um, you know, I would say that our data would probably, uh, I think we can argue, would not support the use of chemotherapy, uh, given that conventional imaging, CT and bone scan, were the staging imaging used in the clinical trials that led to the, the frontline utilization of use of docetaxel in metastatic disease. Um, so I would be uh, reticent uh, to use chemotherapy. And of course, docetaxel is given with high-dose steroid. It also is not that easy to give in the context of a, a cardiac, serious cardiac condition. Great. So I think one of the take-home messages is that we're in the field, we're very busy extrapolating <laughs> uh, that all the data that we have about intensification and what kind of therapy you use is based on conventional imaging. It is not based on PSMA PET imaging. So yes, the PSMA PET imaging would has revealed extensive disease and suggests the need for treatment that goes throughout your body. But really, the trials that have shown that adding agents here were done based on conventional imaging. So we are doing a little bit of extrapolation. Um, so it's, it's important to, to bear that in mind as decisions are made. In this particular guide, uh, he was treated for two years. Um, the standard of care based on conventional imaging, if you have extensive disease, would be indefinite for life. Uh, however, in this man, because he had less extensive disease, i.e. not visible on scans, and because of his cardiac issues, the decision and, and discussions with the patient, the decision was made to stop his therapy. And so he he's, has an undetectable PSA, and he's just going to be followed for the time being. And the question will be, uh, if his PSA begins to climb, uh, is that a time to re-image with PSMA to help guide therapy? And I think, you know, many of us would want to know if there was just a focal spot that you could go after, or if you would re-embark with uh, intensified therapy like this. It's a big open-ended area. At what point should he have genomic testing and or germline genetic testing? Ah, thank you. So, hello, let's go back. Uh, and, and let me ask you that question. Um, I'm going to go back a couple of slides because I think, oops, never mind. 
at what point should this guy have had genomic testing? And Hella, could you, we haven't spoken a whole lot. There's been a lot of questions uh, yesterday in particular about germline versus somatic testing. So this is someone with metastatic disease. I just want to make the point. The decipher testing, which is looking at RNA uh, patterns to assess the risk of cancer, is not used in the setting of metastatic disease. That's only for localized disease and looks at risk. So that's what's happening in the tumor. But Hella, can you just very briefly, I don't know if you talk about it later when you talk about uh, genetically targeted therapy, but um, just talk briefly about germline versus somatic and which would you do in this guy? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we're taking some time to think through this. So when we talk about genomic profiling, what I tell patients is we, we really need to understand the biology of you and the biology of your tumor. And so there are different ways that we do this. One is we send you to see a genetic counselor that could be a video visit, and you have to understand whether or not there is a hereditary risk uh, for prostate cancer. We know that for men with metastatic disease, regardless of family history, about 10% have a known hereditary, are identified to have a hereditary risk of prostate cancer. And this test can be done through a blood test, or it could be done through a saliva study, because even the mucosa in your mouth has the same DNA as the rest of your body. That is your germline. So if a variant or a gene is found there, that does have implications for your family. It has implications for the patient, as there may be a gene that's discovered that increases the risk for other tumors, so they could be placed on appropriate surveillance. And it also may have therapeutic implications. This is part of delivering precision medicine where genes can guide tailored therapy. Now, the other piece that we try to evaluate is the biology of the tumor, which may have features that are aligned with the biology of you and the rest of your healthy body, uh, but it may be distinct. And that is really genomic profiling on the tumor. Decipher is an example of of a company that provides um, sequencing of the tumor to identify um, characteristics that, that can help us tailor the therapy. We think about this for all patients with advanced disease. We really consider doing both for all patients with advanced disease. Then the standard of care guidelines say to, to consider uh, germline genetic testing, so ge genetic testing of your hereditary risk of um, cancer for all patients with lymph node positive disease or more, or for patients who have a known family history or have a rare histology, something that's not um, adenocarcinoma. So in this patient, he's a young man that already sets off alarms. Uh, I didn't mention family history, but as Hella points out, irrelevant. Uh, because in this series, I mean, it, it, a positive family history would heighten our concern, but a negative family history, and I should say this is family history for a syndrome of diseases, prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. These are cancers that travel in the family are associated with by the same sets of genes. That family history would increase our uh, our spidey sense that something was going on, but it's not necessary. Uh, if it's simply the presence of metastases, every man with metastatic prostate cancer like this should have uh, germline testing. Whether somatic testing, which is sticking a needle into the prostate, of the metastasis itself adds anything, uh, we believe it does because there are some changes that happen only in the tumor. 
And that actually where the germline doesn't change over time. It is what it is. You've had it from the day you were born. Um, the somatic changes, what's going on in the cancer can and does change over time. And we've shown that. And so Helen will talk a little bit about this when we start thinking about precision oncology. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.